Welcome to Paytech Talk, the podcast of payment technology law, brought to you by the dedicated lawyers at Adderholt Munich. With Paytech Talk, you get the latest trends and topics and experience the world of payment, banking, and IT. Hi, this is Suzanne. Welcome to Paytech Talk number three. At Money 2020 in Copenhagen, Frank and I had the chance to chat with the great Arnulf Käse, who is uh, one of my former colleagues at PayPal. Currently, Arnulf is a general partner at eVentures, and they manage various very early stage technologies, and he's looking for investment in the fintech space. Arnulf has more than 20 years of experience in the banking sector and the fintech sector, and I believe he can rightly be claimed as one of the leading experts in fintech in Europe, and I hope you enjoy our talk. So this is Suzanne um, at Money 2020 and I'm absolutely happy to meet a former colleague of mine, Arnulf. Um, and I give you a little bit of warning, we have absolutely interesting questions, but Arnulf um, talks double speed, so just turn down and do it in half the speed and you'll get really, really good answers and insights. Um, hi Suzanne. <laughs> hi Arnulf. So here's the first question. Um, in your opinion, how long will we continue to pay in cash? Well, I would say the rest of the world, not too long. <laughs> Germany, much too long. I think the dynamics of German cash replacement by card is going still far too slow. I think the last, last number was raised in 2015 and it was 78% of transactions, 53% of volume. And that is like uh, Sub-Sahara or anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> They're probably ahead of us now. So uh, definitely too long, but it will change over time. I think my kids will grow up in a much more cashless world. And do you think that's a good thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so my next question is, what will be the most commonly used payment method in 2025? Well, again, in Germany, it might be coins. <laughs> <laughs> But, no, I'm kidding. Um, I'm pretty sure it will be less of the credit cards. And it will probably, something in between credit and debit cards probably will be driven by the cost base behind because that's so important for retail and therefore the consumers. And I just heard yesterday uh, an interesting speech here that uh, across the world local regulators have been pushing uh, alternative card schemes to uh, democratize access to financial instruments and at the same time um, break the kind of like the power of the large schemes and like this democratize the access to the market. And so it might be actually new cards, definitely in developing countries. It will be totally unheard of schemes. Let's not forget, a card is a stupid piece of plastic which covers a palm of my hand to carry 16 digits. It will be probably a token of something yeah. that we would know today as being a card, but it won't be a plastic card. Yeah. Otherwise, I'll quit working for this industry. <laughs> oh, okay. The famous next big thing, what will it be for the fintech industry? Well, there's a couple of next big things. Um, one, of course, the most apparent one is the blockchain hype we're all here. Actually, it's not blockchain, it's the distributed ledger or, um, or blockchain hype. Um, it's still totally open where it will lead to. Mm -hmm. And we've only seen in the corners of that use case what works and what doesn't work. But it's um, it'll change the world and we will find more use cases where it makes sense to work with distributed ledgers. But very clearly, not every single use case is used for that. It's a slow way of storing and maintaining data. It's a great way of making data uncensorable and unchangeable. And actually my best use case talking to a lawyer is 
the whole notary thing in Germany of running back and forth and reading out papers is bound to be a blockchain use case. It might come to that case actually later, so there's some resistance. Um, another big thing in the fintech industry is there's still some a lot of spaces which haven't been fully disrupted and where the transformation hasn't really taken place. When I look, for example, direction of insurers, um, I think the insurance industry is still far away from uh, their potential in the digital space. I mean, there's numbers out there that the inefficiency of the insurance system is somewhere 40 to 60% of their values. My mm -hmm. IT inefficiency, my um, broker fees that are being paid. At the end of the day, uh, this is being paid for by the consumer. And if there's an, a 60% inefficiency, um, anyone serving that consumer need of getting more protection at a higher transparency and a lower cost will definitely prevail. It'll be a hard not to crack because the incumbent players are very strong and very present. And it might take longer than we all hope, but um, it definitely will change dramatically. Very cool, thank you. Open up for, for other yeah. questions, Frank. Uh, Frank here. So Arnulf, uh, you are an insider in fintech for many, many years. Um, what I would be interested in is how do you see the current regulatory uh, landscape? Uh, would you say we have a good landscape uh, in terms of fintech can uh, uh, can develop uh, in a way that's uh, uh, in a way that's uh, that validated or Singapore did, or do you have some well issues with the with the regulatory aspects, for example, for anti-money laundering law or PSD2? So, what is your opinion on that? Um, I think it varies greatly across Europe. And it varies, and that's kind of interesting because Europe is like one legal zone with like apparently, or at least it should have, the same intent of, of the laws, but then the local regulation is like implemented very differently. And I think um, the difference is really what is the mandate that the regulators enter the market with. And when you look to like the Luxembourg or English regulators, they have a mandate to actually drive the development of new industries. And I sometimes had the impression in the past that the German regulators felt more responsible for avoiding collapses of the system, which clearly is their official mandate, but you can't do the one without doing the other. And I think making sure that the incumbent banks don't collapse and neglecting that maybe some of your solutions could be coming from fintechs or innovative companies that might eradicate some of the problems that could lead to the collapse on the other hand is a bit short-sighted. So I think becoming more um, startup friendly, not by having less tighter rules, but allowing for sandboxes, by allowing for room to maneuver, saying that yes, it's the same business, but if you do less, you have to comply with less. And I think we've seen that very successful in the UK being taking place. There is not enough startup friendliness across Europe. And then it varies by country, which is really from a European standpoint, being a European citizen, really, really stupid. I mean, if we do believe in the European idea and that things should be the same across the countries, it feels to me, I don't know what the English word is, but that local uh, reign of the local uh, authority, if that overruns the overall overarching idea, it feels very provincial to me. And so we're still a European Union of many provinces. And I think that's something that we have to come to an end to. And maybe we're just not feeling enough pain to get us moving that faster, or people are too worried about it. Actually, I refuse to believe there's a good reason. I think it's bad reasons leading to a bad result. And I think we're all asked, as citizens and Democrats, and as, uh, as uh, governments, we're asked to raise this and address this. There is no 
really good reason for having not a more startup innovation friendly regulation out here. I think they're moving. That's definitely, I mean, to be fair, there's been a lot of like activity in the right direction over the last couple of years, but it's just following not the speed of the markets. And what we, what, what, what people who are in charge of that tend to forget is this is not about a competition between Hamburg and Munich. This is a competition between Singapore, London, Paris, Berlin. And so as a citizen of Europe and a citizen of Germany, I want this place to be a place where the industry of the next generation, where my children will have to succeed in, can actually succeed and is not stopped by surrounding artificial barriers. And there's too many of them. And do you think that a pan-Europeans or single European regulator would solve the problem? So you wouldn't have like 27 regulators but one? Well, at first my reaction would be, oh, so going to be replaced by one super bureaucracy? Um, not really sure. I think it's more a mindset and how they're structured and what their mandate is. I would start trying with give them clear mandates. Yeah, and, and that at the same time comes with probably less empowerment per region. But this is something we see everywhere in Europe and this is like the normal struggle. And so it's by probably making sure that you either empower central organizations to put a bit of competition in there or um, depower some of the local uh, institutions. Um, we were chatting before a little bit about instant payments and, and, and I think I understand you also view it as a, as a pretty big disruption. Do you think it's a chance for banks or is it their death knell? Well, it will be a chance for some banks, yeah. but but that is just true as it is for the entire banking industry. Um, we will sure have banking in 10, 20, 100 years, and we will sure have banks, but what I doubt is that we will have, I think currently it's 1,600 banks in Germany, um, which play a very important role in the local structuring and, and, and availability of credit and lending, so that's very important. On the other hand, um, it's 1,600 institutes, and I don't believe in that efficiency of the crowd. Um, so I think what we're seeing currently driven by the regulation is that the front end becomes deregulated from the back end. And so, and actually the banks have seen that for the last 10 years. I mean, every big major banking group is running on like very, I mean, savings banks, they're running on one um, processing entity. They have a couple production uh, locations, but it's one financial uh, FI services running the savings banks. It's Fiducia for Genossen. It's uh, the Deutsche Postbank, whatever it's called these days, running for the private banks mostly. So the market has consolidated already the back ends. We haven't consolidated the front ends. And the fr front ends in many cases are branch driven, but I mean, they're no longer relevant. They're, they're, it's a huge cost structure. Um, customers don't need to go there. Direct banks have shown that most of the use cases you can solve without being present in there. And it's a super important utility, just like electricity and telephone and gas. But the point is I don't need a utility telephone and gas branch office to go to because ideally they've set up their process in a way that I can manage any of the necessary bureaucratic steps by whatever online idea, which is more cost efficient for both. And so. The banks have this huge burden, maybe also an asset, but it's more of a burden, I think, of the branch offices. And of course, that's tied to many jobs and many other things and local politics. But at the end of the day, there is 600 banks and not all of them have a real good reason to survive and not all of them will survive. Yeah. And so we will see through the regulation, actually, a consolidation of the market. I, I actually, I believe so and I hope so, actually. We have 
not as strong a banking market as we should have, given this like over-atomization of the, of the bank structure. Um, you know, you know that regulation is putting a lot of um, emphasis on, on more customer authentication and identification, and also you see it here at Money 2020. A lot of like online identity identification methods are shown here, but it always involves having an extra card, a reader, or, or biometrics. But still, there, there's a lot of that type of stuff, which is putting an extra step into the payment system or, or whatever you want to do. Um, what, what do you think from your experience? If you give um, consumers the choice between convenience and security, what are, what are they going to choose? Oh, they're always going to choose convenience. I mean, it's like my classic example is the car. So I don't know anyone who goes at 30 kilometers an hour when he hits a, a wall of fog. But I know a lot of people who get like eight airbags or 16 airbags into their car to make sure they can still go fast. So consumer, by definition, consumes. And he does that or she does that usually without changing their behavior. And so solutions which are too clumsy to use, they have never taken off and they will never take off. I mean, HBCI was introduced as a chip card solution, I think 20 years ago. It never made more than 5% or 10% market share. And if you ever used it, it was a nightmare. Yeah, it was card readers and drivers and software and hardware, you need to have it. And it's not, I mean, hardware is one way of, of making it harder, but there's a thousand other ways. Yeah, and it, it probably, what, what it looks like right now, it's, Biometrics, like your fingerprint, could be a pretty good next step, yeah. Um, or eye scan stuff like that. So, I'm very sure it won't be hardware, yeah. It's it's just too annoying, yeah. And on the other hand, I'm a bit concerned that this race for it's got to be super technically secure leads to like systematic little bad user experience. For example, I really don't get it why, like my banks have like their app which is on my iPhone and there's an app for the mobile tan which is on the iPhone and and so I have to open up two apps and then they don't really interconnect and what I just have a hard time believing is that this makes it so super hard and and, and non-difficult and actually I choose my bank by the um, by the method of, of and usability of the authentication system so someone who would require me to carry a piece of hardware around I wouldn't do it it's too clumsy and so we will have to learn that Managing security is not managing maximum hardware security, it's managing security and usability. And we have just seen all non-usable systems fail over time. Yeah, I mean, HBCI could have solved phishing 20 years ago. It just never got the, uh, the user acceptance. And so it's, uh, I think it's a dead-end street. And especially as, as most hardware systems, Even when they're all done, they're still not entirely safe because someone still finds a new way of coming in. We just have to live with the fact that there is a certain amount of risk and fraud involved. And so I rather believe in the smartness of the context. So, so my example is always like when, when I get back from a vacation, I expect my home to be really securely locked and all the windows down and the shades in front, stuff like that. And when I have a coffee on my terrace in the summer, I expect the house to be very, very differently and not do something weird in between because I just want to open the terrace door to get back in. And so the context of where I am, why I am there and what I'm doing at that moment is driving most of the decisions whether my house should lock itself or not. And that is more difficult uh, and that's more costly probably, but I think that's what the successful players will continue to drive forward and the ones who try to go for the cheap technical solutions will just fall behind in a, in a usability. And there was a clear mandate for PSD2, right? It said on the one hand you need security, on the other hand you need uh, friendly user convenient products. So uh, 
the problem that's what the, the people criticize about PST2 because we were talking about if we have a PST3 so the problem here is with the new RTS it's not final yet we have a big fight with the Commission um, the big problem is that many convenient solutions will not work anymore because you have to strong customer authenticate your uh, the customers right so what happens with the with recurring payments for example they will not work anymore if this will be the final solution so I think most of the critics are right the PSD2 failed to deliver their mandate because it's not user friendly anymore and, and I um, I've been following this discussion for for I mean it's been going on for quite a while now and I think there's also some tactics involved of some of the incumbent players trying to link the new PSD regulation more to what they can have and actually I mean, for the classical banks who are not part of e-commerce at all, there's little for them to lose. Yeah. On the other hand, and we had the same when SEPA was introduced, which originally was intended to either depend on a wet signature or on um, a qualified signature, and which both are like unpractical. Back then, it was a trillion, no, it was a billion transactions per year, so a billion postcards following um, German e-commerce transactions would have been pretty stupid, actually. Um, I hope that this will actually change, and. I think it's it's probably more of an economic discussion because it's very simple. If someone wants to allow for his, for a better user experience, um, he has to invest on one end. And if that someone is then willing to take a softer authentication approach, but therefore bears the risk that comes with that, that should be totally fine. And so it becomes an economic discussion with between people who say like, look, I don't want to take any liability of my customers being fraudulented, or other place saying, look, whatever happens, I will turn in for it. And so then, then I'm intrinsically motivated to run my risk management systems at whatever expense to avoid that. And so it's uh, it, it shouldn't be driven by the economics of the people getting away with the cheapest solution. It should be driven by the people who are most innovative about creating the greatest user interface. So Susanne, Arnold, thank you very much. And enjoy the show, Copenhagen. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining Paytech Talk today. For further information, visit your source for legal and industry-specific insights on payment, banking and IT and subscribe to our newsletter at paytechlaw.com.